Amen. His glory will be forever. Church family, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. And I'm not meaning to be cryptic. I'm going to read something to you from the Scripture, but I'm just not going to tell you where it's from. And that's to make a point a little bit later on in the sermon. So I just want you to hear this, and then we'll read this, and then you'll see this lived out in Paul's life, as Acts 25 will be our primary text for this morning. Uh, But here the Scripture says, just listen to it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our hope, that we do have a hope that is in Him. So we want to be a people who, in obedience to this scripture, are ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. To do it with gentleness, to do it with respect, to defend the gospel in a way that honors the gospel itself. And we need your help to do that. And I pray that you'd edify us in such a wonderful example of how Paul does this in Acts chapter 25. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, you can have your Bibles open there too, Acts uh, chapter 25. That's going to be our primary chapter this morning. Um, uh, it's been a little while, but, but when I would go to the dentist, and I'll just full disclosure, it's never been my favorite thing to go to the dentist, and would sit there in the chair as they're uh, cleaning the teeth. Um, they always try to have a conversation with me while they're cleaning the teeth, which I always find a little bit interesting, but um, in one of the offices that I would go to, there was this um, uh, article, if that's the right way of saying it, on the wall. And so my coping mechanism was I would just read through the article as they did what they were doing. Um, but it was a, uh, the title of the article was Advice from a Farmer, right? And some of you have seen this. Some of you have emailed it and forwarded it and so on and uh, so forth. But here's advice from a farmer. Your fences need to be horse high pig tight, and bull strong. Pretty good advice, isn't it? I'm going to read a couple more, and I'm going to read all of them, but I want you to sort of picture a scene in your mind that you can perceive would have led to this advice, right? Uh, Life is simpler when you plow around the stump. You can kind of picture that in your mind. Give you a couple more. This one might be my favorite to picture in my mind. A bumblebee is considerably faster than a John Deere tractor. Uh, Do not corner something that you know is meaner than you. You cannot unsay a cruel word. That's good advice, isn't it? When you wallow with pigs, you tend to get dirty. More good advice. Don't judge folks by their relatives. I was waiting to see if anybody said amen to that, but I'm kind of looking around seeing if that was okay. Um... If you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you need to do is stop digging, right? And letting the cat out of the bag is a whole lot easier than putting it back in, right? So, so if we think through those, behind every word of that pithy little uh, advice from a farmer, you can readily picture a scene or an event 
that brought about that lesson. So here's sort of the structure of our sermon today is at the end, I'm going to give you some advice, not from a farmer. I'm going to give you advice from Paul. But what I want us to be able to do is to read through Acts 25, which is a scene that after we've gone through the scene, you'll know where the advice is coming from. Does that make sense? So that's kind of our structure. That's how we're going to go about it. We won't start with the advice. We're going to start with the scene. And the scene is out for us here, laid out for us rather, in Acts chapter 25. So we're going to read and just kind of walk through Acts 25. What you might want to remember or know from the outset is that Paul has been in prison for two years. He's been in prison for two years on sort of vague and trumped up charges, right? And uh, Felix had been the, uh, the, the governing authority. And you remember Felix, he was a procrastinator. Felix had a hard time making a decision. And so Felix has just let this situation linger. That's what you need to know. Felix has let it linger. And now somebody new has stepped into the role of the governing authority. Felix, we won't go into all the details, but procrastinators usually end up making messes. And that's what happened in the uh, vicinity and the jurisdiction that Felix had is everything got to be a mess, and it became chaotic. So they exchange Felix the procrastinator with Mr. Get It Done. This happens sometimes in sports, right? When they make a coaching change, they bring in a coach who has the opposite personality than the coach they just dismissed, right? If you had a real player's coach, and everybody loved playing for that coach, and he was sort of a lax disciplinarian, but they don't win, they throw him out, and they bring in who? Right? They bring in Bill Parcells, or they bring in you know, Tom Coughlin, somebody who's going to run a straight ship. Or, or if they've been under the disciplinarian for a little while and that didn't go well, they bring in somebody maybe who's a little bit more fun-loving. And that's sort of what's happened in Acts chapter 25. Felix is out, Festus is in. Read verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Are you getting the connotation here? He's somebody who gets things done. He's on the job how long? Three days, right? So you kind of picture him, Felix, I'm sorry, Festus, and I'll probably go on and get the disclosure out of the way. These names get gobbled up in my mind. Not gobbled up, that's not even the right, let's just move on. So sometimes I'll say Festus and you mean, he means Felix and you'll be right. So anyway, so Festus, Festus sits down day one at his desk and he's ready to get going, right? He's got a box that says things to take care of and the list is this high because what? Felix has let the pile get higher and higher and higher. So he comes across this case. Hey, this guy's been in prison for two years. We're going to get to the bottom of it. Three days, fresh on the job. I kind of feel like Festus uh, wants to impress his superiors. He wants to get in there and get things handled. He's the new man on the job. So he's going over his to-do list. Let's get going. So he handles things himself. He went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, Paul is in prison in Caesarea. Big picture, Caesarea is the Roman city. Jerusalem is the Jewish city. Verse 2, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So they've made a request. New governing authority, we want you to change the location of the trial from Caesarea to Jerusalem. But they got a plan, right? As Paul's being transferred, their plan is to have Paul killed. But you see, what uh, what we see about Festus is he's no puppet. He's clued into what's going on here. He can figure things out for himself. So initially what we see about Festus is encouraging, right? 
he's, the, uh, he's, a, he's a rare thing. He's a government official with some initiative and some common sense and who can think for himself. So, so Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea. In other words, they made a request and he said no. They said transfer him to Jerusalem. Festus replied we're not going to do that. He replied Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. So do you see Festus clean slate? He's not made any conclusions about Paul. He's really going about this. What we might say seems to be the right way. We're not going to bring Paul to you, but if you want to come and lay your charges before him, you can come there. So after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. Okay, so he's back to Caesarea. And the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal. See? Again, I just want you to see on the front end, he's trying to do the right thing. He's got initiative. He's got a work ethic. He wants to clear out the to-do list, right? The next day, they brought, uh, ordered Paul to be brought. Now, when he had arrived... The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, so they took him up on the offer, stood around him bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So Festus wants to get this matter wrapped up, but they bring Paul in. And man, it's chaos. Do you see it? Do you need to see about that scene? Is it's, uh, the, the, the emotions are running high. It's tense. And I think Festus is a little bit taken aback. He didn't understand how deep this issue really goes. Festus reminds me of... a. A story I read about a third grade math teacher. She asked one of her students, Now, if you have $2 and you ask your dad for $4, how many dollars do you have? And the student replied, I have $2. Well, you don't know your math, the teacher said. Well, you don't know my father, the student <laughs> replied. See, Festus thinks it's going to go one way and then he gets in. He thinks we can reason this through, right? He's a Roman governing official. This is what they do. They get to the bottom of things. They have people of men of order and stability. But man, the emotions are running and they're so intense. So Paul, verse 8, argued in his defense. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. That's Paul's statement. Paul's statement, I haven't done anything wrong. Two years, right? Two years in the prison, I've not done anything wrong. Now, here we get it complicated. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? What have we got now? We've got a man who started out with such conviction. You know, it's easier to say you're going to do something until you find yourself in the situation to do it, right? It's easier to criticize. I can imagine Festus going to Caesarea. I'm going to take the job, and in his mind, here's all the things that Felix didn't get done. If that job were mine, here's how I would have handled it. And now, guess what, friends? The job is his. And now you begin to see the wishy-washiness. He'd already told them, no, we're not going to send Paul to Jerusalem because he seems to be clued in that they have... Uh, evil intents for Paul but now when he gets in it and he's settled in the job a little bit more and he says I need to do these folks a favor if I'm going to keep my position but Paul said I am standing before Caesar's tribunal 
where I ought to be tried. To, to the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. Now, Festus is confused by why this little guy was causing all the trouble, right? I mean, tradition that's handed down to us suggests that Paul doesn't look like a Charlton Heston or Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? The, the tradition handed down is that he's, not, he's got, got leading man looks. He was really short. He was a small man with, with a... One, one historian said that he always walks like he just got off a horse, right? He's this little guy. And I think Festus is just perplexed. What's all this animosity about this little guy? Why are they so worked up about this? Now, the case, here's the simple truth. The case should have been dismissed. Should have been dismissed. The charges, they brought before the charges. They already said it in uh, uh, chapter uh, uh, 25 or 7. Serious charges against him that they could not prove. And verses 4 and 5, Festus seems so decisive. Verse 9, not so decisive. Now, Festus kind of reminds me of the young man who took a girl on their first date to this swanky Italian restaurant. And after they seated, he peruses the menu, which was written all in Italian. And the waiter came up and he confidently said, I think I'll try the Guisipi Spamdalucci. I'm sorry, the waiter said, that's the restaurant's owner, right? Just, just. He started out so confident, so assured, so in control, so determined to prove he's no Felix. And though the personalities are changed, here's where we are. We arrive at the exact same spot. Charges are not dismissed. And now Felix, who knows what he should, not, who knows what he should do, won't do it. So what's going on here? Look in Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. <laughs> the, the surprising thing is this, that the only person who knows what's really going on here is Paul. Back up to a couple of chapters, Acts 23 verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as, you, for, as, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, that sounds like good news, right? I mean, Paul's going to testify to the gospel in, in Rome, but then we think a little bit more is how is he actually going to get to Rome? And that's what's going on here. What would be the circumstances that brought Paul to Rome? So if we think a little bit, deeper about this God is infinitely resourceful in achieving his purposes even sovereign over the sinful decisions of self-serving people do you hear that that's going to help you the next time you find yourself feeling like the victim of someone's sinful self-serving choices because Paul's going to get to Rome it's just that he's going to get to Rome as a prisoner who's made his appeal to Caesar. I think Paul's unshakable because God's been honest with him from the beginning. Acts chapter 9 verse 15, but the Lord said to him, God's actually speaking to Ananias, but speaking to Ananias about Paul, and no doubt Paul learned this from Ananias, the Lord said, Acts 9 15, he's a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Here's a hard truth, but I think it's a true truth. Not that there's any other kind of truth. You'll be able to testify to the gospel more emphatically and more clearly on your hardest day than you'll be able to testify about the gospel on a thousand other really easy days. And it's true for Paul. He's testifying, just as God said, to kings. He sat face to face with Felix. Now Festus hears him. Now the Jewish leaders hear him. And now he's going to make his appeal to Caesar. He says in verse 11, If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. You see what Paul's saying? He's saying, I'm not trying, I'm not making an appeal for self-preservation. I'm making an appeal because it's the right thing to do. He's exposing their political and religious hypocrisy. But, he says, if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Now, some of you are, are owners of one of the most valuable things I think there is in all the world. You got it at your house, probably may not have it with you now, but you have a passport that says you're a citizen of the United States of America. My friends, you've got one of the most valuable things there is in all the world. Now, if you've ever traveled overseas, uh, I, I always say it this way, if you ever get frustrated with the place you live, just go somewhere else, right? And when I get fly back in and I fly into JFK or fly into, it usually seems to be JFK, and I get there and have that passport and come in, it is a, a wonderful uh, privilege and blessing that I have. And that's similar in Paul's day. He's a citizen of Rome. He's born in Tarsus, so he has certain political government rights. Now, this is important. He knows his rights as a citizen, but his hope is in Christ. Somebody say amen. This, this matters for us. He knows his rights. He's arguing for his rights, but his hope is ultimately not in Festus doing the right thing, not in Felix doing the right thing, but in God bringing about his sovereign will for the gospel to go forth. Now, if you were to, don't do this, but if you were to take the page, Acts 25, out of your Bible and lay in, uh, Acts 25, verses 1 through 12, beside of 13 to the end of the chapter, it's sort of the same scene back to back. But what happens is we get a little glimpse into what's going on in Festus's mind, right? Now, it's a pretty loaded phrase in verse 13. Well, verse 12, let's finish this. Then Festus... When he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now when some days had passed, what's happening here? For Paul to go to Rome, Festus has to fill out the report. So, some of you uh, have lots of reports to fill out for your work, right? You, you know what it means. You've got a report and you write your name and here's the subject. Let's, let's see what's going on as Festus Festus's responsibility now is to fill out the report to send Paul to Rome. He's already told him, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go, right? Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. This is where it gets a little bit confusing for us. Uh, uh, Agrippa is the uh, great-grandson of Herod the Great. 
And so in a similar situation where you have Pilate and Herod at the crucifixion of Jesus, right? You remember this? You have Festus and Agrippa. Rome's in charge, but they allow, as long as they can maintain stability, uh, the uh, folks of their own region to sort of have their say. And that's who Agrippa is. Not everything's on the up and up between Agrippa and Bernice, by the way, but I will hold that for another day. Verse 14, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix. You see that? (laughs) I wish Felix had dealt with this. He left this to me to do. And uh, uh, that's uh, usually the uh, excuse we make. Somebody else should have handled this, but now it's to me. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused, met the accusers face to face in the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge against him, parentheses, except in the, face, except in the case of Jesus of Nazareth. I didn't mention that. But verse 17, so when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. Do you want to sound you know, what, wishy-washy? I won't take account of what I should do. Sounds like this is what it sounds like. So when they came together Here, I made no delay. I'm really doing my job. But on the next day, took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. In other words, case should have been dismissed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. If you get a little bit of insight here, all Paul has to do to get out of all this is just to say Jesus is still dead. All right. That's the concession they want Paul to make, the religious leaders. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions. What's Festus just said? I really don't know what to do here. I asked whether he wanted whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. That's an attempt by Festus to say, let's just somebody else deal with this situation. But hang with me. When Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Finish out the chapter together. (laughs) If I were Paul, I would be so frustrated at this point, wouldn't you? I've got to go to somebody else now, but you are my chosen instrument to testify before kings. So let's get another king to testify before. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Oh, there's so much pomp and circumstance and the music's playing. And in they come. And then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. No robe, no royalty, nobody playing uh, music for Paul. Here comes this little guy walking in. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. Wow, Paul is really walking through the steps of Jesus, isn't he? But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. Echo of Pilate. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. He doesn't know how to fill out the report. That's what he's saying. Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. They're just trying to get a 
government form filled out, friends. That's what all this is about. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Interesting statement, does it? Seems unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. You know what's unreasonable? Holding a prisoner for two years when there are no charges against him. So that's where the curtain falls on chapter 25. No nice, easy, smooth uh, resolution, right? I mean, we grew up on sitcoms of uh, everything gets resolved in 22 minutes, right? But that's not happened with Paul. I don't know what to do. Festus has his form at the top of the form subject. Paul at the bottom, his signature, and then a blank page. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I think it's a little bit indicative of where a lot of people find themselves with Jesus, or with Christ, with the gospel. They don't really know what to do. It's not something that can just be dismissed, right? Either God is God or he's not. And we're not talking anymore about a government form to fill out. He's King Jesus. He's got all authority. He's full of grace and compassion and truth. And you don't get to just sort of send the decision for somebody else to, to make, right? I heard a story as well about a young man who's hoping to get married. He told his buddy, every woman I bring to meet my parents, my mother doesn't like. Oh, well, that's easy, the friend replied. All you have to do is find someone who's just like your mom. Well, I did that already, he said. That one my father didn't like. <laughs> no matter what decision Festus tries to make, he knows someone is not going to be happy. So we need a biblical principle here, friends. Oftentimes making a right decision will often leave someone not being happy about it, particularly if they don't want the right thing to be done. Whenever you find yourself in a complex, complicated, and there's so many layers that we could talk about here. There's the Jerusalem layers and the Caesarea layers and the Festus layers and the Agrippa layers and the so on and so forth. Here's the simplest question that needs to be asked. What's the right thing to do? If you ever find yourself in a difficult situation and you say, what am I supposed to do? Here's the two best questions to ask, and they're sort of synonymous. What's the right thing to do? What's the wise thing to do? Because Festus thinks somebody's going to come along and either give me an out, right, or tell me what to do. A couple of things here. Now we've got the, uh, now we've got the uh, scene. Now we get the principles where we started, remember? Here's the advice from a farmer, and here we can see the scene. Now we've seen the scene, so now we want to see some lessons learned. I've got five things to say briefly about advice from Paul. First of all, I find this observation. Those who've been with Christ are not readily impressed with the world. Those who've been with Christ are not readily impressed with the world. Paul stands before the religious elite of Jerusalem. Paul stands before the political elite of Caesarea. Paul stands before Agrippa and Bernice, who were sort of the celebrity couple of their day, right? I mean, if they had People magazine in those days, Agrippa and Bernice would be on the cover week after week after week. But Paul's not impressed with all of that. He's not impressed, and my conclusion is that he stands, gives a clear, bold, 
uh, testimony of his belief, and he's not impressed with them because he's been with Jesus. Secondly, this is a good principle. Decisions that are put off rarely become easier to make in time. Let's delay it. Put it off. Do that tomorrow. Felix and Festus, these procrastinators, right? Um, If you know what you should do today, when should you do it? Today. Today. Delayed decisions waste time, and they also waste opportunities. So first of all, those who have been with Christ are not readily impressed with the world. Second uh, uh, principle here is decisions that are put off rarely become easier in time. Third principle, politicians often place personal power above justice and right. We see it right here. Now, again, this is important for us. Paul did not place his hope in the government. He knew his rights, right? He's, he knows it. Paul said, verse 10, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. He knew his He knew the structure of his government, but he didn't place his hope in the government. And we'd be wise to be like him. Number four, faithfulness is the hallmark of God's humble servants. We see it here, and I think we see it played out in our culture. The world esteems pomp and glamour and celebrity and get the band playing. And here uh, they entered with great pomp, Agrippa and Bernice, verse 23. They entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And Paul walked into there and looks around. And this is a Roman Empire is the most powerful empire there's ever been in the history of the planet. And Paul walks into to that place and all of their pomp and all of their glory is on display. And Paul It's not impressed. Why? Because he knew, he recognized the mightiest empire on earth is but a drop in the bucket to the Almighty who really reigns supreme on his throne. Number five. Well, uh, can can I give you another principle here? I mean, underneath this, faithfulness is the hallmark of God's humble servants. Therefore, much of your best serving of Jesus will never be esteemed by the world. You've got to mark this down, get this set in your life. Much of your best serving of Jesus isn't going to get a lot of applause, my friends. Not in this life. So strive after loving people and serving Jesus in ways that oftentimes only God sees, right? I mean, if you're trying to serve Jesus while getting this pomp glory, right? Getting the people to stand and applaud and so, so on and so forth, um, you off track. The desire for recognition is the pathway to poor serving of Jesus. So much of, much of, hey, when you study for your Sunday school lesson, when you change the diapers, when the children have got you up again as you seek to patiently shepherd your little flock, Hey, when you share the gospel with a coworker, or you show up at the hospital to pray with a friend, so much of that is not esteemed. It's not going to be on the headlines. It's not going to make the breaking news. But it is eternally significant. Fifth principle, real quick, is this. God uses even the self-serving choices of sinners to bring about his purposes. Paul is going to Rome. 
Paul is testifying of the gospel to kings. And God is using procrastinating Felix, waffling Festus, and the hostile accusers of Paul to bring it about. Now, let me read this to you again. I want you to hear this, and then I want you to just think about what Paul's been doing in his life. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Doesn't that sound like Paul? Doesn't that sound like his life in Acts 21 and 22 and 23, 24, 25, and we'll see it continues into 26 and so on and so forth. But it's actually not written by Paul. It fits so smoothly if I read that verse and said, that's Colossians so-and-so, or that's Ephesians such-and-such, or that's Philippians so-and-so, or that's 1 Thessalonians. It sounds like Paul, but it's not written by Paul. It's written by Peter. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And uh, let me read one more thing to you. I just find this a great blessing in my life. I'm not trying to hide things from you. I'm not going to tell you where this is from either. (laughs) Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Paul, how is it that Paul can stand before Agrippa, Festus, Felix, while Peter, did you hear it? it? It wasn't the Roman legion came up to Peter and said, a servant girl. The Greek word is techna, little girl. Little child walks up. Now, here's where I'm trying to get to. I find great comfort and hope in the fact that the Holy Spirit chose Peter to write these words. Not that Paul couldn't, <laughs> not that Paul couldn't, but I see the sovereignty and providence of God that we get grace. Amen? Anybody here need some grace? Anybody able to look back in your life and say, man, I feel like the opportunity was teed up right there for me to share the gospel, and I procrastinated. I said, I'm not going to do that another time, another place, so on and so forth. 
There's great hope for us that God grants us more opportunities. The other distinction I see is the account that I read to you from Peter's life when he denies Jesus three times was before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, and before the coming of the Holy Spirit. Then the Spirit will come and you will be my witnesses. So fast forward now to Paul in Acts chapter 25, fully knowledgeable of what God has done for him in Christ Jesus. And, and that same thing being so in Peter's life, right? Now, here is, if we can zero it in, and I think it's helpful if a sermon gets zeroed in on something, is what I learned as I studied this week. It's First Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, is what I've read to you on multiple occasions. But I want you to see what he says here. Verse 14, 1 Peter, again, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, in the inner person, regard, the, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It's real simple, and this is where we conclude. Our defense and eagerness to share the gospel is directly related to what we think about Christ in our hearts. The number one reason we don't share the gospel is not necessarily that, and, and these, these things are all good and helpful, that we haven't been trained or we, or, or we don't quite know and so on and so forth. It's our heart. <laughs> Defending and sharing the gospel is a heart matter. And do you think that Paul regarded Christ the Lord as holy? Absolutely he does. What we believe about Christ in our hearts will be proven with our lips, friends. Witnessing and sharing the gospel is a matter of the heart. And a heart in sincere and deep fellowship with Christ is always ready to give an answer, no matter what the question might be. So in conclusion, hardship opens up opportunities to share the gospel to people that would have never come otherwise. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. And then we're going to enter a time of response is what we do. We don't want to just close the book and go about our day and go about our way. What's one thing, what's one thing you believe God might have you do in response to this message from the scripture this morning? Would you bow your heads with me? What's one thing? You don't have to make a list of eight or ten things. Just what's one thing? What's one thing that I need to do in response to this message? Is it to change my perspective about hardship? Not to see hardship as some unwarranted burden, but an opportunity, an open door. Now, Paul says to the Colossians, pray that God would open up an opportunity for me to declare the mystery of the gospel. So said that hardship that we so dread and want to avoid is the open door, friends. Do you find more of uh, Peter by the charcoal fire than you find Paul before Agrippa in your life? Are you ready because of your devotion to Jesus, to give an answer for the hope that's in you. Well, during the invitation, I'll stand here at the front. If there's a burden, a concern, a, 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 a cause for prayer that you want to bring to me, I'll stand right here. If you want to bring that burden here to the front on your own, you certainly do that. Of course, you can stay where you are. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Well, the word's caught in my throat. Well, we can't stay where we are in the sense of just going on like we've been. Not when we encounter the scripture. That's what the Bible is for. That we'd be wise, that we'd be corrected, that we'd be encouraged, that we'd be convicted. So, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit and by your grace, you'd bring clarity in response to your word. Help us not to be hearers of the word only. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.